This evening we conclude our current series of Lord's Supper messages titled The Master's Men. We've been looking at the apostles, the 12 apostles, and you'll remember that in the introductory message a few months ago, not too long ago, we learned that these were just ordinary guys, the 12 apostles, nothing particularly special about them in their own right, though Ephesians 2.20 says the church's, uh, the foundation is built upon the apostles and prophets, and so they played a crucial role, critical role in world history and in the history, in fact, the foundation of the church. We first looked at the Apostle Peter. We learned that when Peter acted in the flesh, he was self-willed, arrogant, impulsive, um, like some pastors that you know and love. And yet when he was spirit-controlled, he had great spiritual insight and initiative and made a a huge um, impact in the first century church. We then turned our attention to James and John and the, the danger uh, of anger. And, of course, they were known as the sons of thunder when they were in the flesh. But when they were spirit-controlled, they were part of the uh, inner circle and great blessings um, to the church. We then turned our attention to Andrew and Philip. And these two apostles, not nearly as high profile as the inner circle of Peter, James, and John yet, were very involved, very influential uh, in the early church. And uh, they, they remind me of, of, frankly, most believers throughout church age. Most believers are not high-profile people. Most believers uh, will live their, their days and go to be with the Lord and not really be remembered in the history of the church, not really having made a mark. Certainly, I'm included in that. You're likely included in that as well. And yet used in profound ways as their time, talents, and treasure are surrendered to the Lord. Then we went in our last study and we covered the seven obscure apostles, that is, those apostles about which we don't know very much. Uh, And I gave you a quick review of Philip because he's kind of on the bubble there. We know a little bit more about him, but not a whole lot. And then we studied Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, James the Less, Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And we were reminded of the profound weaknesses of all of them. I mean, uh, Simon the Zealot, he just as soon take a, a, a Roman or a Gentile's head off as look at that person. And uh, Thomas, uh, known as, uh, as the doubter, and, and Matthew, the tax collector, and he had all kinds of issues in his life, um, and on and on. And yet, we see in each of them how they were made strong in the Lord. This evening we come to the final apostle, the most infamous of the apostles, Judas Iscariot, the apostate apostle. And you'll remember that apostasy means a standing away from, a turning, a rejecting, a denying, and typically it is denying what you once said you embraced or what it appeared to be the case that you once stood for, now you no longer. You're revealed as a fake. And certainly, um, Judas Iscariot is the poster child for that. And it comes at very timely because we just rolled off of our annual theme of defending the faith and our World Missions Conference of apologetics in missions and uh, how that we, uh, the church has always. It's always had and will always have, seemingly, 
until the Lord snatches the church away, there will be those who seemingly are among us who will one day go out from us only to reveal they were not actually of us. That was Judas Iscariot. If you make your way to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, verses 20 through 25. You'll remember Judas walked with Jesus for some three years, yet betrayed the Lord of glory, ultimately with a hypocritical kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26 is just before that, that occurring, beginning in verse 20. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, of course, he being Jesus. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. I mean, that arrested their attention. That got a hold of, of, of their minds. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And began every one of them to say, Lord, say unto him, Lord, is it I? Truly, they were humble enough. And they had seen, and they probably had sensed their, their, their own fear in their own hearts from time to time astonishment at the things that he did and the things that he said. In fact, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem uh, uh, in John, and they're going to kill me. And their hearts were troubled in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled, is what, what he said. And so they knew uh, what his plan was, and they were trying to divert it and, and talk him out of it. No, do that. They're, gonna, they're going after you. What are you thinking? So they were already troubled and disturbed. They were already fearful. And now, he says, oh, by the way, one of you is in essence going to stab me in the back. One of you. And they knew by then that when Jesus made a declarative statement, they didn't have to wonder and worry about it coming to pass. It was going to happen. When he said, one of you sitting around this table will betray me, they knew that he literally meant someone is going to turn his back on me. And they didn't know who it was, and they were humble enough, and they knew of their own weakness enough to say, I don't think I'm the one. Am I the one? And each one of them asked that question. Folks, I sure hope you're like the other 11, that you don't put too much confidence in yourself. Amen? That in a foolish moment, in a weak moment, you could do something that you would today imagine, that's not going to happen to me. I, I'm, I, I can't do that. I wouldn't go there. And yet the 11, the 12 actually, because all of them said that, wondered, am I the one? <clears throat> and he answered, verse 23, and said, he that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, that is, took the bread, put it in the dish to soak up the grape juice, the whatever was in there. The same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And the version in the Gospel of John, verses 26 to 30, indicate, uh, uh, I believe it was the Johannine uh, text, 
indicated it is like you have said. In other words, yes, that is the case. And in John 13, it says that as soon as he partook of the Last Supper, Satan entered into him, into Judas. This is a grave ending, but it's important for all of us to hear it, lest there could be an apostate among us, a lost church member, someone who seems to be genuine, only to never have known him, or maybe watching online even right now, there is someone in that condition. Jesus said, it were, would be better for that person never to have known me. Now think about this. He had said earlier uh, in his ministry, uh, speaking to the religious leaders, woe unto you, for if the things that I have done among you in your presence had been done in Tyre and Sidon and other places, they would have repented and believed. But woe, it, it will be more tolerable in hell for them than it will be for you. They didn't have as much light. You have much more light, he said to the religious leaders. It will be intolerable to a greater degree for you. Apparently, there are degrees of suffering in hell. That being said, what degree of hell did Judas Iscariot experience the moment he closed his eyes in death? And what degree of hell is he... Is he experiencing now? For he walked with Jesus side by side, day in, day out, for three plus years. He heard all the messages Jesus preached. He witnessed all the miracles Jesus performed. He saw things take place that never happened in the history of mankind. And not just a time or two. All the time he was seeing it. And yet, he sold his soul because he loved money. He, was, he yielded to temptation. And Jesus said, the one who betrays me, after all that he has seen, it would be better for him never to have been born than to experience what he will ultimately experience. Four points on this issue of it would be better for him never to have been born and that the Word of God teaches at length. And I don't glory in bringing a message like this, but it's important that we understand and that we hear once again of the reality of hell. The reality of hell. Not a popular subject in our day. In fact, a score of years ago, more than that, 25 years ago, on the front page of USA Today, in one of their editions, the question was asked, is there a hell? And it went on to have a lengthy article. Nine, uh, uh, Americans were polled. Thousands of Americans were polled. 90% at that time of Americans said they had some type of belief in God. Just a generic, do you believe in God? 90% said yes. 10% said, I don't know or no, I don't. I'm sure that number would be much less today. In the very same poll, 48% of those, just a little more than half of those who said, yes, I have some belief in God, 
said, I don't believe in hell or an eternal judgment. And so embracing the one, denying the other. In fact, at that same time, a, a popular TV preacher once said, quote, hell is a poor self-image. Now, where do we get this as a culture? As a biblically, a bibliocentric culture in the first three quarters of our history. How did we get here, folks? Pastors don't preach judgment anymore, by and large. By and large, preaching hell doesn't increase budgets and baptisms, doesn't uh, make the, uh, the counter go up on the nickels and the noses that are, that, are, that are being brought into the coffers. It just is not a popular thing to do. After all, parents don't want the pastor to preach about hell because it might disturb their little ones. And so he caves, or she caves, depending upon your preference. Entertainers promote this heresy through their music. A long time ago, the Beatle John Lennon wrote Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. There's no hell below us, above us only sky. And the first thing that came to my mind when he was assassinated, literally, I heard the news, John Lennon was just shot dead in, in his back near, in, uh, near, uh, near Central Park, wasn't it, Kathy? Uh, yeah, we were close to his apartment by Central Park, Kathy and I have been there. The first thing that came to my mind was not, oh, his poor widow or anything about that. I, the first thing that came to my, mouth, my mind is he just dropped into hell. I believe in the reality of hell, not because I relish it at all. In fact, in a sense, I abhor it. I, I don't, I, I can't, I can't stand thinking of someone dropping into hell. I don't even like to think about it. But the word of God is so crystal clear of the reality of hell. I must preach it and you must too. As Bible believers. We must preach it to a lost and dying world. Because hell is real. Jesus spoke about it much. It's been said that he referred to hell and judgment twice as much as he referred to heaven and bliss even, and here, here's the wrong thinking in our culture and in the uh, English-speaking world anyway, is people will say, John 3.16 is my favorite verse because it speaks of God's, of God's love. And certainly it does. For God so loved the world that we would not, what? Perish. That's hell. You see, God is utterly a God of love. And he is utterly a God of judgment. You cannot bifurcate and divide the character and attributes of God. He is all of both. And so we must preach eternal damnation so the lost will hear. Say, preacher, I don't believe in scare tactics when preaching. Well, then don't preach any of it. 
Because hell is a frightful place. It is a frightful place. It is an awful place. It is a place to be shunned. And today, this evening, if you don't know and love Christ, I trust that the thought of hell will haunt you until there's genuine repentance and faith. Jesus said about the reality of hell in Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Now, the veracity of Jesus and his words are weighed in the balance here, folks. If he said what he means and means what he says, then this verse matters. And he said, there are those who go into everlasting fire. And Revelation 20 and verse 15 makes it clear as well. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The reality of hell. It'd been better for Judas never to have been born. Secondly, the certainty of hell. You see, lost men either reject the reality of hell or doubt the certainty of it for their own souls. Oh, there's, a, there's certainly a hell for Hitler and the like. But I've been a pretty good Joe. I've, been, uh, uh, I've kept my nose clean, as it were. I've walked down that straight and narrow path. Some piously believe that hell exists, but it's only reserved for the most evil of mankind. And Jesus spoke about that type of person who would deny the certainty of hell, thinking that they're doing just fine. In fact, it's in this very same book in chapter 7. In chapter 7, and you know the text, but I'll read it. Chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? I'm a preacher, God, and in thy name cast out demons. Look what I've done, the miracles I've done. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Look at my benevolence. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So, Hell is certain as much as it is real. It's not in conflict with the character of God because he is as just as he is loving. So who will be in hell? All who have not personally received the Redeemer, the sin bearer, the Lord, the Savior, Christ Jesus. And those in that group are described In Revelation 21 and verse 8, which says, They shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. That is the certainty of it. They will have their part. That's their final destination, their landing spot of those who don't know the Savior. Isaiah 5, 14 and 15 uh, addresses this as well. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. In other words, hell is ready to swallow up one and all. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp 
and he that rejoices. That is, those who are doing well in life, those who have enough money, those who have pretty good health, those whose family members love them, those who have a place in society, shall descend into it. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. It says basically any type of person, the wretched, the respectable, the religious, all of those without faith in the Redeemer are certain of an everlasting hell. It would have been better for Judas Iscariot not to have been born than to have received all of the light, all of the information, if you will, about the Redeemer and said, no, I'll go my way. And he did. Thirdly, the severity of hell. And again, I reiterate, I don't glory in sharing this, but there are not words to fully describe the severity of hell. Revelation 14, 11 says, a place of no rest, a place of shame and contempt, Daniel 12, a place of anguish and fire and gnashing of teeth and torment. We're beyond what can be described. I cannot dramatize the severity of hell to the degree that would be doing it justice. I can't display in any way, shape, or form how severe hell will be. If I were to take a group of innocent ones and put inside of a building and torch that building and put it on display for the whole world to see the gruesomeness, the awfulness of it, the anguish of it, that would not do justice to how severe hell will be for the lost sinner. Jude wrote of those in hell in verse 13 of the one chapter, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Hell will be infinitely more agonizing than the worst pain anyone can imagine. Because it's the infinite opposite of God. If heaven is eternal bliss beyond description, Comfort and joy and love and, and security and all of the goodness of God, if that is the case, and Scripture lays out that it is, then hell is the infinite opposite of that. Some joke and say, well, I'm going to hell, but at least I'll be there with my friends. It's isolation. It's aloneness. Filled in your mind, as it were, with haunting memories of the truth being given to you and you rejecting it. And hell will be most severe for those who have been clearly warned and exposed to the truth. In fact, Ezekiel 33 and verse 4 says, Whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet, what's the sound of the trumpet? The enemy is coming. Who's the enemy? Death and judgment. Death and judgment are coming. You, you hear the sound of that and take not warning. You don't heed the message. If the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Forever and forever, Judas will be 
revisiting the memory of the messages he heard preached by Jesus, the miracles he saw performed by Jesus, and it will haunt him forever. Which segues into the last point, the forever part. And maybe the worst part of hell is the eternality of hell. It is the most terrifying aspect of hell. For one might even be able to endure pain, extreme pain and discomfort for a moment. If there's a finishing line, if there's some resolve to this. But never, ever, ever there being relief, a respite, a moment of quietness and comfort and rest um, is truly beyond our capacity to understand. And it's probably good that it is or we would die on the spot if we knew the severity, truly knew the severity of it. My heart fears for those who die without Christ, but that it would fear more and be burdened more. You know, it would actually be easier and more pleasant to believe in annihilationism. Uh, annihilationism is, is a more pleasant heresy than biblical. Or, am, I, am I sounding a little scary? I mean, it's more comforting to think Everything just ceases to exist. You don't know the Lord. It just, it, there's, there's nothing, it's nothingness. And, and in fact, unbelievers, Bible deniers, hold to that. Well, it just all ends. The fact of the matter is, Scripture teaches the reality of hell, the certainty of hell, the severity of hell, and the eternality of hell. We must share that message. Revelation 20 in verse 10 says that the devil and those people in hell shall be tormented day and night forever. And not just forever, but forever and ever. How does scripture emphasize a point more, in, in, uh, more often than in any other way? It doesn't italicize things. It doesn't make bold. It doesn't underline. The way the word of God emphasizes a point is what? Repetition. Holy, not just holy, 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 not just holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, scripture uses repetition to nail down a point, to say, pay attention, this is worth hearing. They will be there. Forever and ever. Because of sin. Because of the curse of sin. And those who have not been forgiven. But those who have been forgiven. Have been released. From the curse. Which was due them. Which was due me. Which was due you. Who believe. In fact Galatians 3. 10 and 13 tell us. For as many as are of the works of the law, are under the curse. That is, if, if you're hanging to your good works, then you're under the curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law 
to do them. You are under the curse unless you're perfect. Unless you truly are perfect and have not sinned. On the other hand, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He was made a curse for us. Because he was perfect in every point. He was tempted in every way and yet was sinless. Therefore, he took the curse for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so, folks, when we observe the Lord's table, we do so recognizing that it is a memorial of what Jesus has done. He became the curse for us so that we may be clothed in his righteousness. Glory to God. He took the place of those who should be judged, of those who should join Judas in hell, of those who have believed and received him. Nahum 1 and verse 6. You don't hear many verses quoted from Nahum. This is powerful. Who shall stand before him, before his indignation? You're going to be able to stand? You're going to be able to stretch your stuff? Who can abide? Who can tolerate, if you will, the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire. And so, folks, let's learn from the apostate apostle, the example that we're given in Scripture, of what Jesus said. It'd be better if he were never born, born than to have been born and know the truth and see, see the light and hear the words and to turn from him. And let's spend our days reflecting on what he has done for us that we could not do ourselves. You're thankful for that, aren't you? Amen. And so we, uh, we're going to enter in to a time of remembering the Lord's table. If our deacons will come uh, and we're going to distribute the elements. It's a, it's a memorial. It's a reminder. Uh, the bread uh, is given to cause us to reflect upon his body that was offered. The juice, uh, his blood that was shed. This doesn't make you a Christian. This in no way... Uh, forgives your sin or any such thing. It's not a sacrament. It's an observance, a memorial of what he has done. We're doing this in remembrance of him. You don't need to be a member of this church. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a child of God, you're walking with him, you're invited to participate with the body of Christ here. Parents, you know where your children are with the Lord, and you don't want them to be partaking if they, in fact, do not know the Lord or if their hearts are not uh, following him and you evaluate that. Lord, I'm thankful for your word, the heaviness of the message and the text, and what it must have been like in that scene right there with those 13 men, Jesus and the 12, and each one of them wondering, anxious, uh, wringing their hands, how can this be? Who is this? And the one having it settled, and just wanting to confirm until Satan entered into him. Oh, my. Lord, may we preach the message in our day that judgment is real. It's, it's right around the corner for those who don't know you. It's only one breath away. And may we be faithful at communicating that, yes, you're a God of love. And it's your love, your kindness that leads us to repent 
and turn from sin and our own way and receive your kindness, your goodness. Move in our hearts that we would give ourselves to that as we reflect on what you have done for us. Swell our hearts with gratefulness and praise to you, Lord Jesus, for you are worthy in your name. Amen.